Today we're going to talk about, for a few minutes, uh, this whole thing we began last week, looking at a passage of Scripture out of 1 John uh, chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Uh, as we look at this, the, the reason we looked at it is because as we think about Christmas, as we think about what God gave us at Christmas, the thing that we need to understand is so often, what do we think about when we think of Christmas? Do we think about, maybe, let me give you an illustration. I pulled it out of the box earlier, I forgot to put it back. Is this kind of what we think about? This is a baby blanket, you know? You know, about a baby. We think about the baby uh, in the manger. That's kind of what we normally think about. But the issue that, that the Bible wants to teach us, it's not just about this baby in a manger. It's not just that's the, not just the gift that God gave to us, even though that's important. Really, it deals with something else. And that something else is really represented more by this other thing that you may have saw, already saw laying under a tree, the cross of Jesus Christ. How many of you think about the cross when you think of Christmas? That's not what we normally think about, right? We think about the baby. But uh, this morning, I want to talk about why it's important to understand that the gift that God wants to unwrap and give us at Christmas is not just about the baby in the manger, but it's about the cross. Because as we began last week to talk about this whole thing in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21, we begin to talk about what, uh, what John talks about is how God approved his love for us about how much God loved us. We talked last week and kind of looked at the whole big picture, and we're going back and look at the first four verses today of that passage, uh, talking about how often uh, that we, we, we deal with or have this misconception of what love is, and because of that, we don't always experience God's love. Uh, do we, uh, many people say, well, prove, you know, prove to me that God loves me. Uh, because I really don't like uh, love. I really have this kind of weird experience with love. Sometimes we've had nev- negative experiences with love, we have this idea that maybe love is something you fall into and fall out of. You heard that before. It's kind of like these warm feelings you have for somebody, and then after a while you don't have them anymore, so you're not out of love. That's the idea we have sometimes of love. But the issue is, is that, and we become skeptical of that, uh, it's kind of like our experiences in the last couple of years with the stock market. I mean, how many of you a couple of years, maybe three or four years ago, were all enamored with the stock market? You know, you're going like, man, it was going great. I mean, you're making money, you know, hand over fist. And all of a sudden, the last couple of years, it's kind of like now every time it goes up, you're going like, oh, it's going to go down again. You become skeptical, right? That's what happened with experiences in our life. And, it, and our experiences with love sometimes shades the way we experience God's love or lack of experience with God's love. And some of you may be here this morning and, and say to us, and you say, well, you know, I want to believe that God is a God who loves, but, uh, but prove it to me. Well, John, in this little letter of 1 John, he talks about three different times in the letter about love. Uh, he talks, like I said before last week, if you were here, that John's not a linear thinker. He's kind of a circular thinker. He keeps coming back to the same things over and over again. But what he does here finally in 1 John chapter 4, he comes and discusses love to the fullest of all the things he talks about, uh, even though he talks about it earlier in 1 John as well. And if you want to read the whole context, read all of 1 John. It's only five chapters. It wouldn't take you very long. But we're going to go back today and talk about how God proves his love to us. And why is that so important that God proves his love to us in various ways? So if you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. If you have your um, uh, bulletin with a message outline, the, the scriptures there as well. Uh, let's read this together and then let's look at four things that God talks about here, or John talks about, in proving God's love. It says this in 1 John chapter 4, beginning with verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. 
This is how love showed his, uh, how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and his only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In a sense, what John is saying to us is this. You know, if you want to prove God's love, let me give you four reasons, John says, that proves God really is love and, and God, how God proved his love to us in a real tangible way. First of all, in verse 8, he says this about love. He says that God's love, that one of the things that proves God is love is, is its very nature. It's in his nature. We talked about this a little bit last week, but verse 8 says, whoever does not love does not know God. And then it says this, because God is love. God is love. Now, let me take you back to grammar class. Uh, some of you are like, oh, that's my favorite class in school. Wasn't mine, by the way, okay? But grammar class in school. When you have two nouns uh, that's put together by a linking verb, it's also called a copular verb. Don't think I remembered that. I looked it up. Um, it's, uh, it, what does it do? I mean, when you have, especially with a, ver- a verb like, like is, it means almost like this word equals this word. It kind of means that in a, in a sense. And so it's, if we look at this and say, and here, we, it kind of says that God is love. God equal love. God is not, but sometimes we get confused by what that means. Because the danger is sometimes a lot of groups, a lot of cults, even some Christian groups take that out of, out of context of Scripture, and they begin to use it to distort the good news about what it's really all about. They say, well, you know, God's about, God's just a loving God. And he loves us. And, you know, and then I've heard people say things like, well, if God really loved me, he would do this. You ever heard that? You may have said it. If God really loved me, he would do this because we think it's about this distorted view of love that we often have. Uh, this past week, uh, one of the things I do when preparing for a message besides study scripture, look at the commentaries, and read writers, I also sometimes listen to other pastors who preach on this same passage or the passage, I'll go and find them online. That's the wonderful thing about the internet. And you can find some great pastors out there, but one pastor in particular I was listening to recently that spoke on this a while back uh, was James McDonald, the pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel up in Chicago. And he spoke about this passage, and he said, and I like the way he talked about the difference between the perception of love that we often have and what really the love that God is talking about here when it says God is love. He says that there's two types of love. He says there is pampering love, and there's perfecting love. Pampering love and perfecting love. And he says the love that God has for us is not pampering love. It's not this love about let me like you feel good. You know, it's about, you know, we, 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 sometimes we have this idea that love is like that, right? It's these warm feelings. But there are feelings in real love. But the reality is that the kind of love that God has for us is this perfecting love. He wants us to grow and become the best uh, person that he made us to be. And so it's in his nature to do that. Uh, the thing is, too, we've got to keep in perspective about what else Scripture says about, about who God is as well. Earlier in 1 John, if you read the whole uh, little letter of 1 John, chapter 1, verse 5, it not only says God is love, but it says God is light. In another place, it says God is spirit and it talks about all those different things that God is. And so often we distort what it means that God is love. And now let me say a couple of things that, that's not here and then what it is, what it means that, that love is God's nature. It's, it's his character. Um, it, it's not in this instant a verb. Remember a while back, back in the uh, start of September, we had a three-week series called Love is a Verb? 
You're going like, are you contradicting yourself? No, because that was about how we express love. That love for us as we love others is, a, is an action thing that we do. It's something we do. But here it's not talking about in regards to God's character. It's, yes, it does. God does love. But that is not what he's saying. It's not just a character trait. It's not an adjective. It's, it's not just saying that he is a loving God, like merciful or, or a patient God. It's also not a metaphor. But often in Scripture we see metaphors used to apply to who Jesus is and who God is. For instance, in Scripture it says that Jesus says, I am the door. It's not a metaphor. It says that God is consuming fire. It's not a metaphor about that. It's, it's more than that. What he is saying here, this is what I want, to, the, the, the instance here about his character is this, is that he's saying, John is saying that love is the pervading characteristic of every one of God's attributes. It's the pervading, overarching characteristics. In, his, in, in, in essence, uh, it's in his essence to love. It's the centerpiece of who God is. Aren't you glad that it doesn't say here that the pervading essence of who God is is justice? Now think about that to the logical conclusion. If God's pervading, if the main thing that flavors everything else that God is was justice, you and I would have no chance whatsoever in this world. But it doesn't say that. It says God is love. And so as we look at that this morning, what it's saying to us and what, it's, what John is trying to say is this. It's the characteristic that qualifies and works with all the other uh, characteristics of God, and that is what kind of love it is. The problem is that so many people never experience this type of love. They never experience the love of God. It's kind of like, you know, it, we get, it's, it's because, once again, the way we perceive love is so flavored by our experiences I don't know about you, but um, back um, a few months ago, you remember, I'll just take you back a few months, when there was no snow on the road, and the wind wasn't blowing, but they were doing paving, remember, uh, everywhere. They were doing paving everywhere. And I remember when they were doing all the paving over on, on War Memorial, you remember that? None of you ever got frustrated with that, right? You know? Um, I remember one day I was on War Memorial, and we were going down there, and I think it was about where Prospect comes across or somewhere, and they were doing a bunch of intersection stuff there, and it was this, it was this long line of traffic. And I'm going like, man, what's going on? Because I could see way up, in the, way up there, way up the hill, I could see a police officer standing there, direct, and it was, it was the red flashing lights. They had changed all the lights, so all the lights were red and flashing. But there was this police officer there, and he kept trying to direct people this way, this way, this way. And it's, I was going like, well, if the police officer's there and he's kind of getting people just to turn, what's the deal? What's the holdup? Why is it taking so long? And then I began to understand something. All the people were doing something. It was kind of bizarre, but the police officer was there in the middle of the intersection in plain view, pointing people this way. Everybody would come, not one, one exception, everybody came up to the intersection because it was a red flashing light, and guess what they did? What did they do? They stopped. The police officer standing there trying to get them to go. I mean, he's getting a little frustrated. You could tell, you know. He's trying to get them to go. And they just kind of let everybody stop. Why were they stopping? Because they're programmed to think, red flashing light, i got to stop. And the police officer's there. Yeah, it's a trick. He's trying to get me. You know, he's going to give me a ticket. 
running a light. You know, I don't know if that's what they were thinking or not. But the issue was, is that we get this programming in our mind. You know, every time you're on a road, and I, I love it because I see a police officer over here. And every time I, you know, every time I'm going down the road, what do you do when you're, I don't care if you're, like last week I talked about, if you're tru- truly righteous and the speed limit's 55, you go 55. But if you're really holy, you go 54. I don't know if you're, you know, anyway. But I don't care if you're being righteous or whatever, if you're, or if you're speeding, whatever. What do you do when you're going down the road and you see a police officer sitting on the side of the road? What do you automatically do? Hit the brake. Just nature. See, we have this character, these experiences in our mind. Some of you have experiences where you've received several tickets, which has really influenced the way you perceive things. But the issue is here, so often we don't experience God's love because we perceive love in a distorted, perverted way, and that's why we have to have God's love proven to us. Sometimes it's because we've had experienced even, even the love of Christ, it's been, we've had it in a perverted way or a distorted way. Sometimes we've had people who say God is love, you know, and they're Christians, and they say they're Christians, and they come to church on Sunday, and, and then they don't act like it the rest of the week, and are going like, well, if that's God's love, I don't want anything to do with it. It's kind of like uh, yesterday I was watching the news, and um, the sad thing is, is the news times tends to pick out sometimes the worst in, in all of us. And, and I don't know if you saw this on the news, but yesterday they were showing uh, um, um, the funeral of Elizabeth um, Edwards. Thank you. Elizabeth Edwards. I, my mind is went blank, which happens on a more regular basis than it used to. But um, Elizabeth Edwards. And did you see that, what was going on there? The Christian witness that was going on there. There was a church, the church, the same church, this church, uh, it's kind of a perverted church, I believe, and I'll just say that right up front. Um, they were, they were out, it's the same church that does, that goes to, uh, funerals of, of persons that have died in battle. I know these funerals of servicemen, and, and they demonstrate that same group of people were at Elizabeth Edwards' funeral, and they were yelling obscenities. At the crowd, man, that was a positive Christian witness. Man, makes everybody want to express the love of God. Now, you know, see, that's if we have that kind of attitude, that kind of thing that happens. What happens is, is that love is, you know, who wants that kind of love? Who wants to embrace that kind of love? That's what God's all about. Now, who wants that? But the thing is, is that that's not what John's. John's trying to tell us that God proves His love by His character, and His character has nothing to do with that. In the New Testament, there's three Greek words that are used for love. The word eros, which is, we get the word erotic from, which deals with this physical type of love, which we so often see exemplified on, uh, in media. Uh, the word phileo, which is a word where we get brotherly love from, and it's, it's used in Scripture as well. But the word that is there that is used for the God's character, God's, the type of love that God is, is the word agape. The word agape is an interesting word, and if you look back in history, the history of the church, actually the history of the Greek language, before the New Testament, you rarely saw that word. It's almost like they had to make up a new word to describe God's love because there was not any word that deals with it. And agape uh, is a word that means this. It means an unconditional commitment to place the needs of another above my own. An unconditional commitment to place the needs of another above my own. It means that that love is not dependent upon my behavior, my choices, my success or failure. And that's the kind of love that the Bible says is part of God's, it's God's character. It's who He is. This unconditional love. And God proves that to us time and time again. So when John says that God is love, that's what he's talking about. This type of love that so often we've not experienced. 
That's the first thing he says that, that proves God's love. Secondly, though, he says this. He said God proves his love by his action. He just doesn't say he's, he's a loving God. He doesn't just say, you know, God is love. He proves it. He says this in verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and his only son into the world that we might live through him. He sent his one and only son. I don't know if you've kept up with uh, you know, how, list, how much you watch news and stuff, but last week somebody told me, he said, did you hear about the story of the family in Virginia? Uh, and, that, uh, and I think it's near where you are. And they told me near where you are that the, 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 this guy, he killed the mom, abducted the 12-year-old, and took her across country, and they finally called him in San Francisco this couple of days ago. And I'm thinking about how, you know, of all the things, the horrific things I could think about that could happen to a parent, is your son, son or daughter something being, you know, terribly done to? I mean, I thought about the, the child over in Peoria that was shot, three-year-old that was shot this past, just a couple of days ago, in a drive-by shooting. I don't know exactly, just people shooting into the house randomly and doing stuff like that. Just terrible things that happen uh, to our children. But the Bible says to us, and John says to us here, is that one of the ways that God proves his love is that, that he sent his son, his one and only, the thing that was most precious to him, to us. And sometimes we're thinking, well, that was God's plan B, because in plan A in the Old Testament, what he did is he tried to prove to us that, you know, he tried to let us, you know, see if we could do it ourselves through sacrifices and offerings and rules, and we couldn't do it. And then God came up with plan B. But that's not scriptural, by the way, okay? Because Jesus was always God's plan A. You know why it says that? Because in Revelation it says to us this, that that the lamb that was slain was from the creation of the world. That God always, always in his mind that was eventually this was what was going to happen. That I was going to unwrap, he was going to unwrap this gift to us, this gift of his love and prove his love to us by sending his son into the world. And, and, and when he did it, I'm thinking about the incredible way he did it to prove it. You know, we think about the blanket and the manger, but you know, he sent his son where? In a manger, in a barn. In a cattle trough, in a smelly, stinky barn. Of all the places he could have sent his son, God, the person who is the, the, the one being in all the universe, could do anything he wants to do, is all powerful. He proves his love to us because remember once again, the definition of love is unconditional. It's unconditional. It's about us. It's not about him. He wants to show how much he loves us. And so he sent his son in humiliation. And then there was the cross. I mean, of all the things that he got... You know, good parents, you know, if you're a good parent, let me give you a good definition of a good parent. A good parent is one who raises their kids, lets them go, and, and, and encourages them to be who they are. You know, they don't have to go into the family business. They do what, you know, they, you look at who they are and you encourage them to grow up and be who they are, who God created them to be. Now, if you're a really good parent, you encourage your kids even down the road. Now, I'm just, no, I'm being facetious here, by the way. Okay, if you're a really good parent, you encourage your kids to go into missions into some bizarre place in the world, you know, right? You know, where they're, you know, might be not safe, but that's all right because I'm a really good parent and that's what I'm doing. But who would imagine a parent who intentionally, from the beginning of the world, chose to allow their child to actually make the purpose of their child to be humiliated? Because that's what God did. Because of his love. And why did he do it? Because it says in the last part of that verse, so that we might have life through him. You're going like, well, I'm alive. You know, all of us are alive, right? Well, it's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the quality of life, the kind of life he wants us to have. 
the Bible tells us that we are all, without Christ, we are dead spiritually. It's what it says. Let me explain it to you. I could have pulled out 50 scriptures, but let me just give you one passage that you might want to write down and read later that talks about our condition without God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and this is not going to be on the screen, let me just read this for you. It says, As for you, talking about us, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who were disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Basically, God is saying here, the scripture, the, the writer of Ephesians, Paul is saying, we, are dead, we were born dead spiritually, but when you're born again... Then you begin to be fully alive. And that's what it's saying here. It says that God sent his son. He proves by his love that he gives to us the opportunity to be fully alive, fully to be expressed who we are. It's kind of like, you know, so often we uh, laugh at people who uh, um, say things in strange ways. You remember the guy a few years ago? Uh, He was all at sporting events. He had the rainbow hair. Remember that? Always had a sign. What did the sign say? John? 316. I mean, he was, he was at golf tournaments. Foot, the guy must have been incredibly rich or something because I don't know what it is because, man, he got tickets to everything. He was at all kind of major sport events on TV all the time. You see him everywhere. I don't know where he is. A few, uh, few months ago, uh, there was a little blurb one time on ESPN, and it was asking where the guy was. And I don't, it never did really answer the question. I get to watch the rest of it. But they were kind of laughing at him, laughing at him. Now, why I may laugh at his methods his message was correct because john 3 what he was trying to get people to do was to look in scripture and read john three sixteen. because the message is this for god so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that he gave his one and only son it's about christmas that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life he was saying that god proved his love because of his character and god proves his love because of his action by sending his son You see, the most important thing in life is not what job you do. It's not who you marry. It's not how much money you make. The most important thing in this world for all of us, the Bible says clearly is this, is what you believe about Jesus Christ and about who God said you are in him. You see, sometimes the reason we cannot comprehend God's love for us is not because we don't see God clearly. I believe it's because we don't see ourselves clearly. Sometimes we think way too much of ourselves. And that failure to recognize our condition that he just talked about in Ephesians, that failure to recognize the condition helps us or hinders us from realizing the significance of the problem that God solved by sending his son to this world. It causes us to miss out on that love. So the second thing about that proves God's love, John says, is that God proves it by his action. But also, um, God proves his love because of his initiative. He took the initiative. It says in the next part, verse John, uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, this is love. Then what does it say? Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He took the initiative. 
Now, why is that important? See, sometimes our terminology in the Christian world, if you think about that, that verse, sometimes our terminology is messed up. We say say things that really, eh, they, they sound good, but they're not necessarily true. We say things like this, I asked Jesus into my heart like it's all about us. Or, or I'm giving my life to Jesus. You know, in the truest sense of the word, biblically, um, God came for you. He pursues us. Let me prove it a little bit more. It says in John, uh, John the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 44, no one, uh, came, uh, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me does what? Draws him. God's the one who initiates the, this, uh, this uh, relationship. In John 16, 8, it says, When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. God is pursuing the relationship with us. That is why he sends his son into the world as a baby to grow up, to be a man, to die upon a cross, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. See, God comes after us. God pursues us, and we must respond. The distortion is, sometimes I've heard people say things like, well, you know, God sent Jesus into the world because he was lonely. Not true. God never, it never says in Scripture that, Jesus, that God sent Jesus into the world because he was lonely. It, you know, I've heard people say, well, God sent Jesus into the world because he so much, saw so much value in us. Well, let me... Let me tell you what Scripture says. And now, if that improves, let me tell you what Scripture says about our value. Because we sometimes think we are so good sometimes. We think because we have little sparks once in a while, we do something good. That, you know, and, and I'm going to tell you, I love what God is doing in, our, in your lives and working. I'm going, walking down the hall here. There's this presence lined up everywhere. You're giving. You're giving. You're giving. But I hate to tell you this, uh, that doesn't make everything right with God because of our condition. You know what it says in Romans chapter 3 about who we are? It says this in verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one, there is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are, so, are swift to shed blood. Uh, ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You know who that's describing? Us. As people. Now, the reason some people have a hard time believing that they're... You see, some people have a hard time believing they're even a sinner. That they have a problem that God, that needs to be fixed they even need to be saved. And you know what that produces if you have that kind of mindset? It produces the inability to accept the love of God. If I don't really think I need what Jesus did, then I won't accept it. And we won't understand the immensity of the gift that he gives to us by sending his son into the world. Now, if you don't believe that you're messed up, let me just do, do a test real quick. Now, I didn't make anybody raise their hands first service, and I won't make you do it too. So in your mind, as I ask you to do this, just raise your hand mentally, okay? That way I won't embarrass all of us, okay? Okay, how many of you know, how many of you know the Ten Commandments? Any of them? Any of them? Just in your mind? Yeah, I know, yeah, I know some Ten Commandments. Yeah. Okay, let me, let me do a test here. How many of you have ever told a lie before? Don't raise your hand, Okay. Even a little white lie, you know, just a little one, little one. 
If you've ever told a lie before, what does that make you? Now, you can talk to me about this one. What does that make you? A liar. Thank you. I knew you could answer that one. Okay. How many of you have ever taken something that wasn't yours? I mean, like you borrowed it, you know, permanently. You ever done that? If you've done stuff like that, what does that make you? Thief. Thief. Okay. Uh, how many of you, how many of you have ever taken the name of the Lord God in vain in any way? You know, uh, you know what the Bible calls that person? A blasphemer. Okay. And that's not a word we use very often, but I thought I'd throw that one out just to kind of throw it in the mix. Okay. Once again, do not raise your hand. How many of you have ever committed adultery? Nah, I've never done that. You know what Jesus says? Jesus added that if you look at a woman, or women look at men, and lusted after her in your heart, you've already committed adultery. That's what Jesus says in Matthew. So think, rethink your processes here and ask yourself, because that makes the vast majority of us here adulterers, okay? So taking all those together, this is a church group here, okay? If we've done any of those or all of those, which we've probably done most of those, that makes us lying, thieving, blasphemous adulterers. Aren't we great people? Okay, yeah, we don't need anything God has to offer, but we do. God's love, God's love is immense. This unconditional love he's given to us is an immense gift. It reminds me of, of the attitude that we need to, to foster in our lives I don't know how many of you have ever heard of William Carey. William Carey was a missionary to India. He was considered the father of modern missions. He was the first person, one of the first persons who went overseas and lived amongst a group of people to begin the process of trying to bring them to Christ. And William Carey actually did a lot of incredible things, but he spent, one of the things he did is he spent 41 years of his life in India without a furlough. It means he never came home. 41 years on the mission field. And during that time, uh, you know, he struggled to try to help the people in India come to know Christ. And he had, you know, based upon his life, you know, he had seven, eight hundred people that came to know Christ directly during all that time. And it seems like a really small group of people. But also that some of the things he did is he began to look at the culture there. And some of the things that he looked at is he, he uh, began to, uh, to uh, help them abolish some practices that were barbaric there. Things like a, a baby killing. You know, in that culture, if the baby was unwanted, what do you do? You just kill it. That was what was done in that culture before William Carey came and began to help them to look at it in a different way. Uh, other things like widow burning. <laughs> If you were a widow in that culture and you couldn't support yourself, they would burn you to get rid of you. Also, things like euthanasia, where they would kill people who were disabled or elderly. They exposed them to the elements so they would die quicker. I mean, all those things were happening in the culture. And William Carey spent his life trying to help people to see how God saw people and began to abolish. And many of those things were abolished in the Indian culture over the years that he was there. And you would think that somebody who spent that much of his life really committing himself to God and doing all that would have this high impression of himself, right? He'd really think highly of himself. Well, when he died, this is what he asked to have written on his tombstone. Born August 17, 1761. Died June 9, 1834. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. You know why that's the right kind of attitude? It's because it realizes what the Bible says about who we are. Without God, without his unconditional love for us, we have no hope at all. 
It makes us realize what the gift is. It's, it's huge. It's the most important gift anybody could ever give us. I'm often amazed, you know, in, in culture, we go through different things. I love contemporary music. The only problem with contemporary music occasionally, I'll just be a critic here of this, is that sometimes it doesn't give us all the sides of what the Bible says. For instance, there's a couple of, there's a whole bunch of old hymns, and not all old hymns are good too, let me just tell you that, okay? They're not all created equal. But there's some that says some things in the old hymns that I was looking back that, that says things about this mindset. There was an old hymn that says, this is the line, and I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. That's a, a hymn I grew up with in church, sung all the time. You may not have sung that one, you probably sung this one, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Theology is great in those two hymns. It says that, you know, without God, we are nothing. So don't get all pumped up about, you know, yeah, God made us something, but he, the problem is we rebelled against God, and because of that, we turn away, and because of that, we have no hope without the gift that he gives us. But the good news is that he gives us, God proves his love. It's part of his character. He took action to show it to us. He took the initiative. And then finally, God proves his love because of his justice. Because of his justice. Um, 1 John 4, uh, verse 10, it says this, and it's the last part of the verse. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. And it says this, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. An atoning sacrifice. King James says it's propitiation. Uh, we don't use that word because it's a really hard word to say. But, uh, and it's not something we use. But the issue, it says an atoning sacrifice. What does that mean? It means that it's something, it's, it's a payment to satisfy God's wrath. God's got wrath. Well, God, you know, if God, like I said, if God's overarching attribute was justice, if he did was exactly what, God gave us exactly what we deserved, we'd be in trouble. We'd be in trouble, but because of his love, because of what he's done, because it's part of his character, he didn't do that. Hebrews 9.22 says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And some of you are going like, well, Bill, this is not your traditional Christmas sermon. It's not about the baby in the manger. Uh, where are the wise men? Where'd they go, you know? What about all that? You know, the warm, cuddly stuff. Well, let me explain something to you. God coming into the world was not just about a cuddly, warm baby. It's about the baby who was born, who lived a sinless life, to die a substitutionary death so that you could be forgiven because of his, the unconditional love of God. That's the message of Scripture. And that's the gift that God wants us to unwrap. I was reading recently a book by an author, uh, actually a guy current, still around, R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul wrote a book called Saved from What? I thought it was an interesting title, Saved from What? And he asked the question, the question is this, what do we need to be saved from? Because often people will come to you and go, are you saved? And if you're not a Christian, you don't have a clue what they're talking about. You know, saved, what am I saved from what? And he began to realize that so often, even in evangelical circles, what happens is, is we don't understand, you know, we'll ask, well, what, it, what is it we're safe? And the issue is, as he began to go through the book, it's not a very long book, it's a very short book, and I read it just in about two settings. And the thing was, is he said, he said this, you know, the thing ultimately in Scripture that God needed to save us from is what? God's wrath. God's wrath. God's judgment. God's 
what we deserve is not what we get. And it, that's expressed fully in Romans 6.23. In Romans 6.23 it says this, For the wages of sin is death. Now if it stopped right there, we'd all be in trouble. For the wages of sin, what you get paid for doing what we do naturally is death. Eternal separation from God. That's what it is. You know, it's not about dying physically. It's about dying, dying spiritually. But it says this, but, and I love this next part of the verse, because it's everything to do with Christmas. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God gave us at Christmas the one thing that you and I could not imagine. You know, so often we get all excited. We're going like, you know, people say, well, like, there, there has to be multiple ways to God. Well, let me explain, explain something. The way I look at it is this. It's amazing that there's a way to God. And the only reason there is is because God made the way. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakcc.org.